Good evening, everyone. So I'm Ian Thompson. Welcome to Bologna Advisors' first ever podcast, uh, the first of our Better World series where we look at economic and social issues in the UK. They're often overlooked, uh, and you are part of history tonight, everyone who's actually listening in. We'll see whether this becomes an institution like Coronation Street, or whether it goes the same way as Peter Cook's 1971 famous chat show, Where Do I Sit?, which lasted for three episodes and was taken off the air after Peter Cook asked Kirk Douglas. Uh, so huge thanks to everyone who, who's listening in. The third, first podcast today is on all things relating to strategic rail freight interchanges. And before I bring in my esteemed panel, I just want to walk, walk through what strategic rail freight interchanges actually are, because depending upon who you speak to, you get a very, very different response. So strategic rail freight interchange is a large multi-purpose rail freight interchange and distribution centre linked into the, both the rail and trunk road systems. It has rail connected warehousing and container handling facilities and may also include manufacturing and processing activities. That very long-winded explanation is actually from the National Planning Statement for National Networks, which I uh, would encourage you all to read from 2014. Now, obviously, the purpose of an SRFI then is to maximise the way goods are moved from the point of supply and the point of demand. And in practice, the kind of developments that you can see across the country, places like the uh, Natalie titled Daventry International Rail Freight Terminal, uh, East Midlands Gateway, which is next to the M1 in the Midlands, and Doncaster's latest uh, mega shed scheme, iPort, developed by Verdian, developing 6 million square feet next to Junction 3 of the MA team. So you'd think in an era of decarbonisation commitments and increasingly demanding consumer base, that SRFIs offer the best of both worlds, a more efficient and productive way of doing business and a way of satisfying burgeoning consumer demand. Why then are there only 17 SRFIs across the UK, usually crowded around the M1? What can we actually do to accelerate their adoption? And that's exactly why I brought in the panel this evening, which I'm delighted to say is a genuinely heavyweight panel of industry experts. I'm sure we'll each provide fairly trenchant opinions on where SRFIs are and what needs to happen. So in alphabetical order then, joining me on stage, uh, metaphorically speaking, Gareth Dennis, uh, is an engineer and writer specialising in transport systems and policy. As well as his day job as a railway design engineer, he's a writer for the Railway and National Press and regularly provides explanations on TV and radio on all key rail issues, as well as lecturing and hosting his own hashtag RailNatter show on YouTube. Gareth, good evening. Good evening. Next up, Nick Gallup. Nick is uh, Managing Director of Intermodality who for the last two decades have provided product design, development and delivery advice to a number of rail schemes, including several SRFIs. Nick holds a dubious distinction of being the only panellist having previously worked with me, uh, and this was on HS2 related projects. And he's also well noted for his uh, knowledge of all things mute records. Bonjour, Nick. Evening, Ian. And finally, the wise sage that is Simon Ricketts. Simon is partner and co-founder of Town Legal LLP specialising in planning, compulsory purchase and related public law issues on major mixed-use developments across the UK. Uh, yet again, he's just been named the UK's top planning solicitor and hosts a rather excellent Clubhouse podcast, which I'm delighted to say I've simply copied and pasted for the purposes of my own ends with the Better World podcast. Pleasingly, he's also a fellow fan 
uh, of the 1980s work of Herbie Hancock, Greeting Simon. Thank you. And, and Mute Records. Yes. But we'll, we'll carry on the uh, SRFI uh, theme reluctantly, I suggest. Yeah, I'm sure most of the 19 people that are in the room would prefer us to talk about electro music. But anyway, we'll, we'll crack on with all things SRFI, as you say. So really, I think the first place to begin, I'll begin with, with you, Gareth, is is the concept of what an SRFI is well understood, even by people in the rail or real estate industry? Because it appears that if there are only 17, that we've got a bit of a way to go. Yeah, given that, given that strategic rail freight interchanges are supposed to be just that, strategic, which, which you'd think would mean that they're you know, critical elements in, 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 in the national infrastructure, you know, in, in the UK's sort of um, array of, of not just rail, but road and more broadly logistic infrastructure, you'd think that there'd be a broad understanding of what they are. But no, there isn't. I don't think there is. I don't think the concept is well understood. And I don't think it's well understood. Okay, not so important that it's not well understood by, um, you know, as I say, in my day job, um, I'm, I'm doing the best job I can when people don't notice, you know, my best railway design is one that is not noticed by the traveling public or, or freight users. Um, and I think the same goes in terms of the general public, that the general public shouldn't necessarily care what, what a strategic rail freight interchange is, or, you know, not, not, not broadly. What is worrying is that within the rail industry, certainly, you know, I can't speak for the real estate industry, but for the rail industry, I don't think they're well understood. Um, they appear magically and the rail industry then uh, either watches them never become connected to the rail network or um, sees them, uh, you know, uh, sees the connection appear and then has to deal with the consequences. And, 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 and whether that is, you know, dealing with the fact that gauge, you know, the, the space around trains uh, on railways connecting to it hasn't been achieved or whether there's signaling challenges or whether there's just not the capacity to run trains into it. I don't think the strategic rail freight interchange itself is well understood by the rail industry at all, which is possibly one of the small factors in in why we haven't seen more of them but probably not the largest thanks gareth i mean does that chime with your experience nick um obviously you, you you've been working in the uh, rail sector for as long as you care to remember do you think that that's a, a view that's commonly shared across the industry well i think like like the group depeche mode um porter effect uh, i think they they've in their early years were rather sneered at as being somewhat lightweight and answering a question that nobody asked um, and are gradually going on to become world dominating or, or industry dominating developments. But you're right, as things stand at the moment there, there's probably a very clever Venn diagram that someone could put together, which is the group that get it, which are the Prologists, the Verdions and the train operators that serve them and the occupiers who use them for rail and the hinterland that supports them for rail. So there's that group of the early adopters, people like Tesco's and Stobart's and Maritime, who have firmly got behind it and really understand it. Then there are the group that don't get it at all from the property development industry, who I think there are one or two, either because they don't understand rail or they've dipped a toe in the water and it's all felt a bit cold or a bit hot and they've decided not to go any further, who would rather that that all major freight interchanges, i.e. distribution parks, that all, could all have the same benefits in the planning system that strategic rail freight interchanges get. And then there's the other group that don't get it, which is most of the general public. And that's more to do with the fact that the logistics industry, because it spends its entire life worrying about tomorrow and how to be better than they did today, very rarely puts its head above the parapet, a bit like the rail industry, I suppose, they don't, they don't put their head above the parapet and say, these big grey boxes you see picking up alongside motorways, etc. They're there because you lot keep buying stuff. 
Um, you know, the ONS said that the amount of business premises for distribution logistics has grown by 88% over the last 10 years, the biggest single area of the economy that has grown. So in spite of us all dependent on them, most people out there haven't got the faintest idea what a warehouse does, let alone what an SRFI does. Well, you were certainly promised trenchant opinions, everyone. I'm certain, certainly uh, that is the case, Nick. But I think uh, you raise an interesting point about the real estate industry and its knowledge or, or working knowledge. I mean, Simon, you, you've you've worked on uh, both SRFIs that have come into being, uh, but also those that are stuck somewhere within the planning system. I mean, what do you think SRFIs and their efficiency is understood or the way that people could make better returns from them? Or do you think uh, they're in the too hard pile uh, from some of the people you've worked with? I think they're understood, but it's a huge um, commitment from a standing start for a promoter in terms of you know, capital investment, um, time, um, working out whether um, to go for a, an SRFI or, or, or some other form of development on the land which may not have such technical constraints in terms of having to work with um, Network Rail and, and everyone else. But it is a surprise given how positive, you know, general government planning policies are towards this form of uh, development and given, and as we'll come on to, that, you know, there is this um, NSIP, Nationally Significant Infrastructure uh, Projects uh, route for securing consent, which you know, is there to make these infrastructure projects um, to facilitate um, securing development approval for these sorts of projects. So um, it, is, it is a bit surprising that, that we're not seeing more of them come forward. I mean, that probably touches on quite nicely to the next stage, which is, well, what are the critical elements needed to make a successful SRFI in 2022? So you've got 17 that are currently live. There are a handful that are currently within the planning process. Nick, you, you've got first-hand knowledge here, and thinking in particular of the work that you've done with ProLodges and Adurft, and you've worked on uh, a number of other schemes closer to home uh, in the north of England. What would you say the main elements were to, to get these off the ground and actually profitable for the people that run them? Well, well first point, and it's a real nitpicky point, is that there's, there's only eight operational at the moment. There are a number of others in the planning process, but but we have a relatively small network of them. Um, but but in terms of the the key criteria, you know, you could you could just summarise it all by location, location, location. But it is true that you want somewhere that occupiers want to come to in at scale, which invariably will will direct them towards the trunk roads or the motorway network, where those intersect with a half decent railway line. And the reason I say half decent rather than it's got to be X, Y, and Z, is that in some cases, the railway has grown in its capabilities alongside some of these sites, so that what may appear at first read to be a site that doesn't tick all of the boxes, like Iport, because it wasn't on the strategic freight network, it sure as hell wasn't W8 gauge, let alone W10 gauge. Um, you know, when, it was, when we were first sort of working on the planning case that, there were a lot of things against it from a railway point of view. It was... And it's back to Gareth's point that I don't think they're understood. In some cases, some people are quite suspicious of them for some strange reason. That if it was a quarry or a district or a or a port, you know, you might not get the same sense of what are these things. Um, oh, look, they're running trains. Oh, we'll take notice of them now. But um, 
so I think it is that case of it doesn't have to be um, ticking all the boxes for its rail capabilities, provided there is a general view from the promoter and network rail that those capabilities can come on stream at some point. But in an ideal world, if you look at the, the National Policy Statement and Planning Act, yes, you'd want a route that can or could be capable of taking 775 metre trains, even though very few of them run at the moment on the network. You would ideally have it between W8 and W12 gauge. But again, the more the gauge number goes up, the less of the network it actually covers. So Tesco quite sensibly decided their strategy out of DERF was going to be based around W8 gauge container consists with wagons so that if a if a W10 gauge route went ping, like when the Pendolino bounced off the West Coast mainline at Grey Rig, they'd got a number of W8 gauge routes they could take to circumvent that problem. If they pushed everything to W10 or W12, your ability to be creative and contingent doesn't work quite so well. So it, it is back, it, it's back to those fundamental points. Can you get a 775 metre train in there somehow at some point over the life of the investment? And these could be, you know, 50 to 100 year investments. If you look at the ones on the continent that have been going since the 70s, before we even coined the idea of SRFIs and tried to hijack it as a British invention, um, you know, has the route got the capacity? Has the highway route got the capacity? Has the land got the capacity to achieve that common objective, which is to achieve distribution floor space at scale, from which every single one of those eight have passed the field of dreams test that they built it and the freight trains came in varying degrees, but they've all come and they've all come at scale. Thanks, Nate. That, that, that's got me thinking around. You, you mentioned a lot of your answer was focused on the, the rail network itself. But I mean, Simon, it was something I actually touched upon within my report. I mean, if you're a landowner that's got 200 acres that is relatively close to a motorway network, but with, uh, say, an historic rail connection, but there is a uh, immediate demand for warehousing or general industrial space on that land, then is it actually worth that landowner going through uh, the apparent rigmarole of bringing forward an SRFI rather than making a, a quicker return with just the standard road route? Well, that, that was the sort of dilemma I was hinting at earlier, Ian, but I, I, I think it increasingly is worth the uh, landowners a while for a few reasons. Um, first of all, procedurally, if you can um, bring forward your scheme as, a, a, as an NSIP, there are certainly timing and certainty um, advantages and, and also um, you're dealing with the Secretary of State for Transport as a decision maker rather than the individual uh, local planning authority and then wondering whether your application is going to get called in or uh, whether you're going to need to appeal. Um, but, but secondly, you've got the, the, the sustainability arguments are all one way in terms of the advantage of rail connectedness and um, uh, you're, you're going to have a far stronger case um, uh, if, if, if you can demonstrate how many uh, you know, HGVs you're taking off the network. So I really do think that it is worth people's while looking at the um, uh, 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 at the SRFI route. And, and another advantage of falling within the NSIP process is, you know, this is meant to be a process. It is a process where you mop up a number of other procedures at the same time as you're securing the equivalent of planning permission. So, you know, that you may need to uh, deal with 
um, highways stopping up or in diverting footpaths. You may need um, third party land by way of compulsory purchase. Um, you may need um, uh, to um, amend uh, particular, you know, legislation in relation to the railway or something. And all of that can be dealt with within the same process. So, um, you know, it, 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 you need confidence to deal with what is still a relatively, you know, um, uh, less trodden, well-trodden route, but it, mm. it's certainly worth looking at. If if I can jump in, you know, actually, sure. and just just to echo that, uh, as, as Simon's saying, we've got to remember there's, there's there's another fact here that we've not really alluded to, which is these are enormous, enormous pieces of infrastructure. You know, the land take of some of these uh, sites is is absolutely massive, and they fit within a community. They have to fit within a community. And one of the challenges, I think, uh, certainly in my experience of, of some of the strategic freight uh, kind of interchanges that I've been working adjacent to or, or doing undertaking projects that are related to them i won't name names radlet but um they're related to their, their perhaps their lack of uh, integration into the local authority or the combined authority plan I, I think one of the things that we need to see is yes these are strategic pieces of infrastructure but they have to be um uh, they have to be incorporated into the wider picture of of the devolved authorities whether it's a local authority or a council or a Combined authority, a city region, and um, these have to be part of their their plan as well. They have to because the, uh, 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 these interchanges don't succeed if they don't see agglomeration effects. If it's just an isolated interchange between road and rail, it doesn't work. The, the most success you look at Daventry. The success of Daventry is the fact that it's it's driven this agglomeration effect of other uh, you know, kind of um, secondary industries, if you like, have built up around these interchanges and and, and just enhanced their made them an absolutely vital part of the of the logistics uh, kind of network. So so I think we also have to think about how they fit with the community, how they fit with local authorities and and combined authority plans. No, I think that's a, it's a good point. I mean the. Um idea of SRFIs in effect being enormous community assets and uh, as, as Simon uh, said clearly you know the way that the uh, NSIT nationally significant infrastructure project uh, process works is that community uh, involvement piece needs uh, should be demonstrated as part of that argument but interestingly and this is coming on to the, the, the economics of SRFIs if you've gone to place SRFIs anywhere in the UK, and I, I'll take Nick's point that maybe you know if there are eight live SRFIs and the seventeen I was referring to includes a couple currently stuck in the planning system, then where would you put them? Um, Simon, I'm going to go with you first, given Gareth and Nick have answered the uh, first two questions first. I'm afraid. Um, mm, well, where would you put them? Well. Uh... We, cer we certainly need uh, a ring of SRFIs around uh, London and we, you know, we haven't got them in place yet. And I've written previously about um, how that goes to one of the real failings in um, the government's approach to date, which is um, it's not, it's okay, you know, having all of this um, positive language in the national networks. Um, a national a policy statement about um, the advantages of uh, strategic rail freight interchange schemes and how they'll be supported through the planning process. But, but given that um, because of the scale of um, these projects and 
the their lo locational constraints almost um, inevitably they're going to um, be in areas where um, there are going to be environmental policies or uh, the, uh, uh, other constraints, maybe greenbelt land, etc. So, so you know, w w we need the guidance to be more than generally generally positive, and actually say not only is there a need for um, uh, SRFIs, but the 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 but to be more locationally specific about the need, so that you can then rely on that statement that you know there will be at least three. SRFIs within here, this region, or on this um, route, route, or whatever, to to um, succeed in arguments that uh, through the examination process that that this is, you know, the, the the right and necessary site for this this scheme to come forward. So um, I'm sort of dodging the question as to where they should be, but what I'm what I'm really saying is. Um, the, the, the government should be working with the industry to 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 work out how the the needs uh, are going to be met mm. across the country, and then set that out in a sort of spatial document so that that can be relied upon by promoters in bringing forward individual schemes. Mm. No, that, that's that's uh, that's well put, Simon. I mean, cause if you look at the network rail map of where SRFIs exist or plan to exist across the UK. You end up with an agglomeration of schemes across generally close to the M1, the A1, and I think there is only one north of Wakefield, uh, which is which is in uh, Scotland. And so therefore, you know, you think in huge areas of the country with large uh, population centres not being served by SRFIs. I mean, Nick, I mean, what what would you what would you do in 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 that particular uh, that particular point? I mean, clearly, is is rail capacity an issue, or is this a lack of land, or what would you think? Stopping other SRFIs away from the M1 and the A1 coming forward. I, I, I think the further you go south of the Pennines, the more I think certain sections of local authorities just stick their fingers in their ears and just start screaming until it hoping the hope it'll all go away. Um, you can see how the planning system has bounced SRFIs around the M25 from one site to the next site, each time saying, well, it's the other site that should be chosen until you've gone full circle back to the one you started with, at which point they go, oh, yeah, well, there probably should have been one here, shouldn't there? But we're still not going to allow it. Um, so I think it, it is inconceivable that the biggest collection of economic activity in the country has no SRFI presence. Um, for a model that is proven to work elsewhere, where there isn't that such concentration of economic activity and freight activity with it, seems a bit counterintuitive. You know, even if you took the lid off each of the buildings in, in that mythical SRFI or the mythical extra SRFIs that the London and South East clearly needs, it may be that they're regional distribution centres under the bonnet, not national distribution centres, but it seems a bit daft to take loads of stuff up to the Midlands only to bring it all the way back down to London and South East in a truck or in a train that could um, to drop off and pick up. So there is that point that um, we do need it in London and South East. And that's a can that keeps, keeps being kicked around the M25. You'll end up with a position that, um, um, that they'll have to go down the DCO route, which will be by far the biggest test for the DCO yet, I think, that 
that while DCOs have had to deal with quite contentious sets of circumstances, sometimes the planning inspector has, has recommended refusal at East Midlands Gateway and the Secretary of State overruled them. Other times, everybody has been in agreement um, between promoter and planning inspector and Secretary of State about the need and the opportunity and the impacts have been mitigated and that on balance it should be allowed to proceed. So London South East stands out like a sore thumb. You could then go out to places like the North East um, and then start looking at, at infill sites, maybe in somewhere like the Bristol area, in a large concentration distribution activity there, um, but with no real central rail presence. So, so I think there are, there, there are a couple of undiscovered regions yet, but I think it's more about step back. What's the context? 155,000 premises in the UK are related to transport and storage. And at the moment we have eight sites that have maybe half a dozen of those buildings on each one that have access to an integrated rail terminal. So it's more about not trying to distinguish between SRFIs and distribution parks, which all cluster up and down probably every single motorway junction there is. And just make the point that if we've got 150,000 odd buildings in this sector, that it is really about trying to extract from the MPS the opportunity and the way through to get more of the balance of those 150,000 buildings rail served or proximate to a rail terminal, rather than try and treat SRFIs as something completely divorced from the rest of the, the warehouses in the supply chain. Gareth, did you want to come in there? Yeah, definitely. I absolutely echo what Nick says there. This comes back to a drum that I bang frequently about, uh, and generally in the context of, of passenger movements, but actually it absolutely applies to, to the movement of goods and, and generally the logistics industry, which is that you cannot look at anything like this in isolation. You cannot look at a, a, a massive piece of infrastructure like a strategic rail freight interchange in isolation. It has to be part of the ecosystem, the logistics of the country. Now, there's a problem here. Uh, and that problem is that the logistics companies, you know, the big the big distribution companies, you know, uh, Amazon being a very good example, hold their cards incredibly close to their chest in terms of what their movements are, what their flow necessity, you know, flow requirements are. Um, that is a challenge. And, and with with my kind of long term strategy hat on, data is the key to deciding where these things go. You can't just decide on a whim where they're going to go. You can't follow the the kind of the, the coattails of the of the most bright eyed kind of tech bro with where they say they want their rail freight interchange either. We need to be taking a more strategic long term view that is not that, that's essentially organisation agnostic as to where these massive sites go. I've talked about community impact. They're, they're having some, such a substantial community impact. We need to think about their long-term uh, long need for them and how they fit into that ecosystem. Absolutely agree with Nick on the idea that uh, we can't think of them. We can't just think of that top tier either. We have to think about how they fit with urban logistics. You know, it's a serious challenge we've got of, you know, dozens of competing companies in, in very congested uh, urban areas that that is frankly is not the future of how we move goods around in uh, in in urban areas. And as we see more low emission zones arising, then then your standard HGV is not going to be able to access most of the urban areas in the UK as well, which which is a will be a massive change to the logistics industry. So we have to think about you know that we're building these huge assets. They have they they're going to sit there for decades, and we have to think about how they're going to be used for decades. So so yeah, the way I would decide on kind of coming back around to the original question, the way I decide how they go is uh, how they're positioned and, and where they should. Be is looking at data, getting an understanding, discuss with organizations what data they, in terms of logistical movements, they're willing to share, meet in the middle, 
and actually compile all that data and understand where these sites need to be. And then you start discussing with local authorities as to where you, where they would like them to be. And then you can start using the, the legislation that the strategic element brings in to position them. I think that's the best approach. Yeah, I think central needs assessments are very, very sensible, um, given uh, the rapid pace of change that we've seen, even in the last two years, uh, in terms of uh, uh, trade movements. But one of the things I wanted to touch on, and it was about, you made the point, Gareth, about decisions need to be data-driven. And clearly, the way that the planning process, which Simon's alluded to, works at the moment, is that if you've got a rail served scheme, you can try and promote it through the uh, National Significant Infrastructure Project, which was brought in by the Planning Act in 2008. And, you know, giving people the option to pursue a development control order, whether it's in the right location or not within the UK. And that will, I think, carry on if there isn't that overarching document from government which states this is where we'd like strategic rail freight interchanges uh, to be cited. I mean, it probably uh, ties in beautifully, Simon, with, with, with your care of expertise, which is, do you think that existing planning system, I mean, noting the point you've already made about this, this lack of strategic clarity, whether it's a help or hindrance in, in bringing rail freight interchanges forward in the UK? I think it's one area of the planning system that, isn't actually working too badly because when the NSIP um, procedure was brought in by the Planning Act uh, 2008, it was, you know, specifically brought in to make consenting processes for major infrastructure projects simpler and more predictable than the um, traditional planning application process. And, you know, it, it's, it's proved to deliver because, you know, we've had except we've only had, I think it's four um, um, DCOs in relation to SRFIs. Um, so Durft, East Midlands, Northampton Gateway, West Midlands. But, but, but each of those, when I look at the, the timescales from submission to, um, to uh, the development consent order, um, it's, it's far quicker than um, a significant planning application for you know, a few thousand homes or for uh, other forms of major, usually contentious development. The, the um, you know, the, the, the time uh, until recently, the, the government has pretty much kept to um, its promise to promoters in terms of the strict time limits for the different stages of the um, process. Um, you know, it is very front loaded, um, uh, which brings its own challenges you know you can allow you should allow you know maybe a, a year or more of pre-application work but but then when the um the the uh, application is submitted to the planning inspectorate you know the inspector have 28 days to um, basically validate the application then there's six months for the um the panel of inspectors to conduct the examination um, uh, they then have three months to uh, report to the Secretary of State and the Secretary of State has three months to determine the application so you know you have this the, the formal process you know should be through in um, you know just just over a year add a year or so for um, the pre-application work um, uh, so you know at the outset pretty much what, what's 
when something is going to come out of the sausage machine at the end. And not only that, um, when you look at DCOs as a whole, as of last month, there were 209 projects of all, 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 all different sorts of infrastructure that had entered the DCO uh, regime. 109 of those, had, as of last month, had been decided. And um, uh, of ones which had gone through the examination process, there's a success rate of 93.5%. Very few um, uh, uh, applications, you know, get knocked back uh, uh, after the examination process. Um, uh, you know, with, with, with some, the Secretary of State has approved um, the DCO, um, notwithstanding the examining authorities' recommendations to the contrary. And in a way, the recent, well, the decision last week on Sizewell was, a, was an indication of that. So, the, it, to my mind, it is a pretty favourable um, process. The only further things which I would want to see are a tightening up of the NPS, the NPS. and we know that um, the NPS is to be um, reviewed um, by by next year. That was indicated in the future of freight plan. But but you know I, I want it to see to be much more specific in its support um, for SRFIs in in particular regions. I think in order to um, give promoters the confidence that they're not going to have to fight a really difficult battle of demonstrating, for example, on a green fields, uh, a green belt site that, that, that there aren't, um, you know, more acceptable alternatives, um, not involving green belt land or, um, you know, that, that that's the real challenge. Mm. The system, the, the, the system is, is, is there for use and pretty much works in my view. Mm. Well, just coming to your point around the uh, NPS, I mean, the future of freight plan is a recent publication. Uh, which was just published in the, in the past few weeks, in fact, uh, which looks relatively supportive of SRFIs. But do you not think, Simon, you know, with, with frankly, the, the um, changing nature of government, you'll have a new prime minister in place within the next six weeks uh, with potential upheaval in the Department for Transport, that that somehow gets lost and that commitment for a, a review of the NPS gets lost? Yeah, I mean, I think we've all got concerns about the bidding war between the two candidates for PM at the moment as to who can be uh, shown to be um, as hard, more hardline than the other um, two party members on issues such as climate change, um, resisting development in areas where, you know, people don't want to see development. Um, yeah, and these things could could um, have repercussions for um, uh, nationally significant infrastructure projects. You know, I, I, I do agree. Okay. Mm. I mean, do? so I mean, the, yeah, mm, well, we'll have to see ultimately who ends up taking the reins at the Department for Transport. I think I'm, I'm fairly sceptical on the government missing uh, its deadlines on the review of, of, of planning documents, as we've seen with the National Planning uh, Policy Framework. Gareth, I mean, with, with everything that Simon mentioned about the way that, um, you know, uh, NSIPs are in effect used, development control orders are processed and, and determined, um, do you think that's well understood within the railway industry or do you think that there are improvements you think that the rail industry would put forward for the way that uh, SRFIs are brought forward? 
I think it comes back a bit to my original point is that as a rail industry, we don't do much new stuff because we haven't been allowed to historically. So, you know, even even our understanding of Transport Works Act orders is is, is not necessarily as uh, as good as it needs to be uh, across the industry. I think there's a lack of understanding, a lack of confidence. There's also a lot of duplication in the process. And, and, and I think that goes for some of these planning processes as well. There's a lot of uh, there's, there's a lack of understanding of what that of how to streamline that process. And I think there are. I think that comes back to some of the technocratic challenges we see in the rail industry as well. You know, we get we find ourselves focusing a lot on, you know, we've alluded to for anyone listening to this who has no idea what W8, W9, W10, W12 are. These are the the um, the shapes within which we can fit infrastructure. We call them the W gauges. They are um, the size around which we can fit trains. So the higher the number, generally not always, but generally the bigger the container that you can fit, and the, and the less complicated the combination of container and wagon you have to deal with. Um, so, so you know, some of these technocratic issues, you know, um, we can we can kind of get get lost in, but we aren't so good at building new infrastructure, and I think that it probably slows down the process from a rail industry side as well. Thanks, Gareth. I think one of the points you make there, which is around the use of language, and obviously rail, like all other sectors, has its own language, uh, is something I want to uh, look at further. But, but before we do, Nick, conscious that you've acted for a number of uh, major developers in bringing SRFIs forward uh, and you've been involved in schemes that are both uh, contentious and non-contentious. Where, where, where's, where's your head and that of your clients in terms of the, uh, how the ease of, of which um, SRFI applications are determined? I, I think the, 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 the tragic irony, I use the word tragic because what I suspect is coming, that like, like onshore wind farms, they're a great idea until they start rubbing up the party that's in power in the shires where it, where that party has a strong or a marginal presence and suddenly offshore wind sounds much more interesting doesn't it and i think we're seeing signs of that now and i fear the review of the mps will try somehow to do the same thing to srfis because fundamentally this is a policy that hasn't cost the government but one penny because the developers pay for all the costs of the development consent order process they pay for all the infrastructure they pay for all the mitigation new highways, junctions, all of that good stuff infrastructure-wise is all paid for by the SRFIs. So something that has brought people like Tesco's and other major players to rail at scale is a tremendous success for a piece of government policy work that hasn't cost them anything or the Treasury. So it, against that background of something that, you know, that hasn't cost us anything as taxpayers because it's the developers and their occupiers that have picked up the sometimes eye-watering infrastructure costs um, that are associated with them, that the situation works. And it also works because, unlike the SRA, that stumbled into this where everything had to have the word strategic in front of it, and to be fair, they, they brought the first SRFI policy and the whole term into being in 2004. But if I could count up the number of hours we lost at public inquiries, arguing the toss about well, is it three round the M25 or is it four? Because the SRFI policy says there should be three or four. Well, is it three or is it four? And is this one one of the three or one of the four? And how did they arrive at that? And can we see all the data? Well, of course we couldn't because there were commercial confidences or a lack of confidence in the data that the modelling work that the SRA had done to give a theoretical view as to where these things would be, they weren't prepared to publish it. And we... Um, and the, the DCO process marks it out that we do not spend hours and hours wasting people's time arguing about is there a need. The MPS says there is a compelling need. 
full stop. It's very, it's very French. It's very statement of national utility. I'm terribly sorry, but we do need these things because have you got a plan B? No, you haven't. Fine, let's proceed on that basis. So I, for one, am nervous about what is going to happen to the NPS. Are they going to raise the bar so that in certain areas it may be politically expedient for it to become even more challenging than the NPS says it is already challenging in particular London and the South East. So I would still, I have to say, on balance, defer to the industry, uh, both occupiers and developers, to decide where they think these should go. Because if we wanted to halt the SRFI process for the next 20 years, let's get consultants in, let's start lots of theoretical modelling, put those results out for endless consultations and get local authorities to try and pass the buck into each other's territory that when they identify one that should be in, say, the southwest quadrant of the M25, that all the local authorities start getting their own consultants in to rubbish the work that the Superior Department has come up with, but also then to start trying to claim that next door's neighbourhood is a much, much better place. If I could find that mythical place called Over There, um, because it's been quoted at pretty much every single SRFI I've ever been involved with over the last 20 odd years. Yes, we believe in mode shift, but couldn't you do it over there? Well, where's over there then, if it's not right here? So I, I think it is an uncertain future for SRFIs to grow at scale if they are going to start materially tinking, tinkering with something that hasn't cost them anything, has, has generated an awful lot of economic, employment, mode shift benefits uh, without requiring lots of grants and subsidies to make it happen. So. I think we're just going to have to see who comes in and whether they believe that SRFIs are the next, are the next group after onshore wind farms to, um, to be tweaked into oblivion. Well, I think uh, <laughs> it's fair to say from, from that, Nick, I think we all know where you stand on that particular issue. Um, but I think what's interesting to know is the, the length of each of your responses showing, frankly, your, uh, all of your latent enthusiasm Fresh RFIs, uh, frankly, is being a key future of real estate idea. But Gareth just touched upon one issue, which is poorly understood, which is that the language that's often used when um, street rail freight interchange schemes are promoted uh, across the UK, often with, with local people. I mean, Gareth, you touched upon before the um, public outcry against Radler in Hertfordshire, and then, you know, that's been the, uh, ongoing for, uh, for, for many, many years. I mean, I'll come to yourself, Gareth, first. I mean, what, what, everyone agrees that they're a good thing, but how could the use case or the justification for strategic rail freight interchanges be improved or, or the benefits explained in order for, for people not to have that hair trigger, as, as, as Nick described it, don't put it there, put, put it over there mentality? Yeah, I mean, this just comes back to something I spend a lot of my time doing, which is uh, dealing with um, people who... Well, to be honest, it's not dealing with people who don't understand the need for strategic infrastructure. It's dealing with the consequences of a government uninterested in selling the need for strategic infrastructure and it being very politically useful to not bother to explain the point of these things because then they can flip-flop when they need to to, to gain votes. So um, it, it's as true for High Speed 2 as it is for um, major freight infrastructure like SRFIs. And if you, you know, if, if there's no interest on a strategic, you know, avoid the word strategic. If there's no interest at a government level to sell the need for a more decarbonized freight network, then you know without that 
broad and i'm not talking about uh, kind of uh, two paragraphs in a in, in their strategic freight kind of sustainability document i'm talking about an actual plan that says we intend modal shift of this percentage by this year you know that's the level of that's the level of detail we need it doesn't need to be hyper detailed i agree with nick that there's there's, there's a risk of over meddling but you you it, there needs to be a target from government whether it's from dft or wherever saying we expect a reduction in the volume of uh, road traffic, road haulage, HGVs of this percentage. And at that point, then you can start explaining to the public how that will look. And at that point, you can start saying, well, in order to achieve, you know, once you start localizing that number down to, well, actually, in this particular part of the East Midlands, there are this, you know, on, on this stretch of the, wherever it happens to be, or on this stretch of the M25, there happens to be this number of uh, annual HGV moves, and we want to bring it down to this. And in order to do that, we need to have this here. And the date is this. In order to sell that to the public, you need to have those targets. But also you then need to actually bother to explain it to the public and actually say, well, the reason this is happening is because across the country we're trying to we're trying to decarbonize transport. And it has to tie into things like low emission zones. It has to tie into these other policy elements. It has to tie into um, general spatial planning. It has to tie into the bigger, you know, the, the, the local authority plan in terms of how it fits with employment plans and how it fits with housing plans. Uh, you, the, these things are not, they cannot be separated out. And, and it's not a case of bogging everything down. It has to be a case of, in order to get these things to move quicker, you want to start by getting the public on side and not making it a thing that pe people can kind of oppose. And particularly when it comes to local politicians, either MPs or councillors, of actually getting them to support it and publicly be behind it and explain why it fits into the local plan in terms of getting rid of HGVs, um, in terms of, you know, perhaps moving HGVs off the local road network and onto the strategic road network, that sort of activity, and reducing HGV moves overall by getting stuff onto rail. If you start selling it in that sense, and it's exactly the same, my experience on this is fairly extensive with the HS2, as soon as you start localizing the benefits, explaining what the local benefit is, people start getting on board. Yeah, and uh, I would completely agree with that. That's certainly my experience with HS2 as well. I mean, one thing I'll probably point out, Gareth, is that, you know, as you say, it's on the scheme promoter to properly get across those those benefits. As you say, is it economic? Is it to do with decarbonisation? Is it to do with roads and so on? But I can't help feel, and I place this in the report, that I think the way that the public debate is conducted goes, um, goes against that and often acts to the detriment of the promoter. So if I give an example, I mean, this was the House of Commons debate on tri-taxes proposed Hinkley National Rail Freight Interchange. One of my favourite MPs is Albert Costa, uh, who's, who got taken to task by uh, Ian Hislop at a public committee. And he said the following, the planned site for the Hinkley Rail Hub would in totality encompass 448 acres of land. For scale, that's about the quarter of the size of Gatwick Airport. That area is currently beautiful, rolling South Leicestershire countryside. My constituents in the villages already contend with overburdened infrastructure at the best of times. Uh, there are already heavily congested roads, many of which are narrow and winding and suited to the levels of traffic that uh, would be seen should this awful proposal be approved. Given the HGV traffic entering the site, the alleged approximately 8,000 employees will be trying to enter it for work. And I point out and say, well, if someone's being so disingenuous, talking about a quarter of the size of Gatwick Airport, the alleged approximately 8,000 employees, that's that's playing to the, the to the gallery somewhat. I mean, Nick, Nick, you know this this particular site as well. Um, from my understanding, it's already home to road-based warehousing, a Cala gas tank farm, and a major motorway is running through it. I was wondering why why 
you know, apart from just scoring cheap political points, somebody would, would make that kind of statement. Well, and, and it's Chris. I mean, it's not one we're involved with, but, you know, driving past the site, it's crisscrossed by pylons. It, and I, I'm sure I'll be shot down in flames by this for saying so. I, I wouldn't regard it as as the sort of place that, you know, Betjeman or something would have would have set up a campaign were he still alive to stop it happening. I mean, we've, yes, we've, we've suffered the slings and arrows, you know, one in particular around the M25 where the sitting MP at the time, um, we gave that person the, um, uh, as a courtesy to see all of the exhibition boards before we went for our first public consultation. Said person came along with their researcher and a digital camera because that's how long the scheme's been going. Um, and um, and looked around all the boards and nodded at each one and concluded that, well, of course, I completely get the idea of switching lorries to um, to rail, but I couldn't possibly support this. Um, the emphasis being that my, my, my electorate wouldn't support me. Um, and, and there it is in a nutshell. There is the reason why we have a national policy statement is that if you leave it to local level um, and because it is not a distribution park, because it's given a different moniker, and maybe that's the problem here is that we artificially like, like, it's a high-speed railway. It's going to bring fire and brimstone down upon us. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a high-speed railway, but it's another piece of national infrastructure. Do you have an alternative? You know, my first days at Kent County Council were on high-speed one. And as I said to a number of people down there, as a hapless, wet-behind-the-ears local authority officer working for them, because they all reminded me that they paid my wages, that I said, well, where's our plan B? Do we build another M20 through the county? Um, and now it's settled down and it's all landscaped and East Kent realises it can get to London and Westfield Shopping Centre that much quicker and the rest is history. So I do think in the UK we have this unfortunate national conscience that unlike the French who embrace infrastructure and want it in their territory and will fight one another to get it into their territory, granted much bigger landmass, but over here, the the initial view from all of us as Brits is, oh dear, it requires change. Uh, how do we stop it happening? Um, so it's somewhere in that sweet spot again between a national policy statement that is seen to be in some quarters words fait accompli. You know, as Simon said, 93% of these things get through. Um, so, so others view it as a suspicion that it's a fait accompli. But if you take it down to the local level, it's never going to happen because it's forever going to be bounced like a hot potato from one district into the next. So perhaps if there is work to do, it is trying to explain to people that if they want their deliveries the next day, it needs big buildings full of stuff for them to be able to get their things the next day. So I think it's partly educating people about logistics, which we are, as an industry are woefully bad at. And then it's also, again, making sure the sliding point where you stick the pin between the MPS and the local plan is sufficiently sufficiently towards the MPS, but with a degree of involvement of the, the local plan that you can actually get these things through with, with perhaps more of a sense of community cohesion than, than maybe has been achieved so far because it's all in the messaging. And if the first thing they see is a four-letter acronym that has the word rail or freight in it, somehow they see it much more differently from if it's an expansion of Magna Park at Leicester, for example. Hmm. I mean, Simon, is that is that your your view as well? I mean, given you know you you referred to a number of these southeastern schemes that you've uh, previously worked on. I mean, uh, you know, Nick Nick's raised uh, you know, a couple of important points there, and Gareth talking about the, the need for the effect local benefits to be emphasised. 
would, would you agree with those points or anything else to, to raise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sad fact of life that practically any major development proposal in this country is inevitably uh, locally unpopular. Can't think of many examples to the contrary. Um, and given that I think everyone accepts that there is a need for um, these schemes, then we need a process which is depoliticised as far as possible. The, the Planning Act NSIP regime was initially, when um, created by you know, the Blair government, going to be almost entirely depoliticised because the, it was then the Infrastructure Planning Commission that was briefly created to not only examine um, the applications but actually make the final decision and then when the coalition government came in in 2010 they adjusted the regime by changing the name for a start no longer the infrastructure planning commission it was rode into the planning inspectorate but they um, took back the final decision so it was the relevant secretary of state who would make the final recommendation on the recommendation uh, decision on the recommendation of the planning inspectorate I think that was a backward step because it's often not in the government of the day's interest to be the one holding the the, the 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 politically awkward decision that's got to be taken having said that you know as the statistics statistics show um you know uh the government has been um you know or, or, or making difficult decisions to grant um these permit uh consent for these schemes i i, I do think what it's easier said than done, but yeah, the messaging is really important in terms of, you know, why are these schemes so vital? Well, you know, we've all seen the vulnerability of supply chains uh, in the last couple of years. Um, the cost of living, obviously climate change and um, congestion on motorways and in urban areas, but, but we probably also need to work more on you know what what do community benefits packages look like to um that 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 um at least provide some upside for those who have to live you know cheek by jowl with these schemes which are huge and undeniably will have some local effects and you know the government has previously come up with some advice about uh in relation to onshore wind in terms of the sorts of community benefits packages which you know might be um appropriate and and you know maybe we need to look a bit more at at that um sorry it's a meandering answer but um no not at all i thought hmm. it was very I thought it was very well founded excellent answer but clearly that there's a lot of uh, work to go at in, in quite a lot of detail but clearly i think that the sense i'm getting from all three of you is it's it's not insurmountable uh, which leads us on beautifully to, to our final question before I open the floor to uh, uh, questions for the last 15 minutes, open the, open the uh, session to the people listening in. If there's one thing you could alter in the entire public debate on SRFIs, what would it be? I think we're going to start with you, Nick. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure what you're going to say on this one. I'm going to try and keep this one brief. I think if, um, <laughs> I think if there was one thing I'd do to try and improve that, it's it's almost making it mandatory for local for promoters, local communities, uh, local planning authorities, and other stakeholders to have to take a party of stakeholders to an existing SRFI. I mean, this is something we used to do down in London when we ran a freight quality partnership down there when they were in vogue 
amongst local authorities that, you know, after speed humps, the next thing they wanted was a freight quality partnership, even though they didn't know what it was. But we, we duly ran one for them. Um, and one of the some of the best events we had was when we actually went and took people from the local authority, you know, beleaguered officers who have got 17 day jobs and, and haven't got the grace of pay. And, and sometimes that can that can get people, you know, trading wages for power if they think they've got the ability to stop something. But the, the best results we had was to actually take people inside distribution centres, take them to rail freight interchanges. And it's amazing how it desensitises and improves understanding and awareness of what all these things are. When people start seeing boxes of things they recognise, you know, 18 metres high, almost the tops of the um, the rackings in the clouds and these uh, and, and the staff that run them are very well trained and very obviously well trained. And the machinery is amazing. I mean, Gareth could do a whole documentary series on on materials handling systems because it I, it would it would be great on Channel Four or, or Channel Five. I think people would be genuinely interested to know how logistics works. Um, yeah, that that would be it. Is to is to get people out there and see how these blooming things work because you fear what you don't understand. Yeah, I think and look, any answer that involves studying the work, I would always support, Nick. And, uh, yeah, I would echo your points on uh, the need for uh, some kind of um, TV or educational programme around logistics and rail serve logistics. And, uh, yeah, Gareth, I would completely support you doing that as well in case the, the opportunity arose. I mean, I'm keen to give Gareth the last word on this. I mean, Simon, from your perspective, I mean, how, how would you uh, change the uh, public debate and it uh, could include uh, uh, MPs of any kind of few of your choosing. Uh, I, haven't much, I haven't got much to add to what Nick, Nick says, um, but I, I did want to give a shout out to uh, the BPF's Industrial um, Land Committee because I thought that their uh, document, the, logis the logic of logistics, um, uh, was it this year? This year um, was really, really good in really ramming home, predominantly for lo local authorities, but for public as well. Um, the 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 need, you know, what what logistics is about, uh, what you know, what what the need is, um, and um, what the what what the benefits are for the country. And um, I'd love to see a version of that which was really focused on SRFIs. Thanks, Simon. And um, Gareth, last last word from you because I think this is uh, your your key of expertise, Jim. Yeah. Uh, look, 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 the, the key challenge we've got is that we have a um, we have a, a chronic uh, problem with the, the amount of carbon emissions our transport system releases, uh, and frankly particularly in logistics, that's not changing anytime soon with with magical electric HEVs or hydrogen HEVs. Fundamentally, the way we reduce carbon emissions is by shifting stuff out of HEVs and onto rail. And the only way we can do that is by creating interfaces by which we can take stuff that's done the long distance haul on rail and then put it into into either a goods vehicle, a, you know, a heavy goods vehicle or a smaller goods vehicle. And that requires rail freight interchanges, whether they're strategic or not. And the, anything that happens that allows those to be built more easily and more rapidly is a good thing. And we have to be cognizant of the impact it has on people. But fundamentally, I think the way that we need to achieve that is by having a strategic view of having a view of how our rail, what our rail network is supposed to do. And at the moment, unfortunately, uh, I don't want to end on a downer, but we currently have a plan for the rail industry that involves reducing its capacity to move freight around. Um, that's not good. 
<laughs> I was in the House of Commons explaining why that's not good. And I was in the House of Lords more recently explaining why we need to have a longer term view, a depoliticized view. And absolutely, we need to move away from um, kind of port barrel politics or, or, or government by competition. We need to move towards a view where we see the, the full picture of how goods are moved around. And only by seeing that full picture, only by seeing that full picture, can we actually then start tackling these bigger picture challenges. So, yeah, um, I, I think it's, it's useful to end on the bigger picture and why on earth we're talking about this stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that creating those inter that interface, those interfaces, those nodes, the... Um, uh, the strategic rail freight interchange is absolutely crucial in achieving that. Thanks, Gareth. And yeah, I would completely echo that. And I'm sure Simon and, and Nick would as well. Very sensible and yeah, depoliticised. I think uh, you know, long term funded as well. Um, in fact, department to to focus on that would be a, an obvious way forward, and probably means that it won't be a way forward. Um, so we, we've got another ten minutes. Uh, I'd, I'd welcome questions from the floor by from anyone if you just want to use the um, uh, the clubhouse uh, app to, to to raise your hand, your virtual hand. If anybody wants to ask any questions of the panel, I'll give people ten seconds. Well, we appear to have the uh, quietest room ever uh, on this particular podcast. So all I think I'll do is. Uh, gents if you've got any last words on the subject anything you don't think that we've we, we've touched upon i'd uh, i'd welcome your input on that who'd like to kick me off i, I think um yeah motor mouth here i think uh it's it's picking up what gareth said uh, and and we do need to as much as the srfis are the flag wavers for this at the vanguard of creating mode shift at scale you know we, we were in central london um today where a train came in, um, a freight train came into central London, um, transferred over some roll cages um, and went on its merry way. And at the moment, you know, the train's there. Um, it can serve any one of the stations on the network where it's electrified and where you can get a sensible road vehicle access route through from the roadside of the station to the, the, the platform side of the station. But it was done at a major station in London and no one was there screaming and shouting. No one was burning placards or laying down in front of everything and saying we shall fight them on the beaches because it's just there and it's, it's redoing a role it used to have. Um, and that role could be very important for a, a very significant stakeholder in the retailing industry right now. But as of now, that train has no national or regional distribution center it can run off into um and and gareth's right you know behind the srfis that have grown up off the back of intermodal that's moving containers around um whether it's from the ports or more importantly moving containers uh, from the midlands to scotland because that was a sector that didn't exist really until the srfis came along and all the retailers and logistics companies started jumping on and why there are so many trains running from the Midlands to Scotland now carrying containers. Um, and that's all great stuff. And it would be great to see that happen across a much wider base of end users. But Gary's absolutely right that, that as the, the pattern of SRFI starts to mature, the attention then needs to look at where else can you recreate this so that we've got a network. Eight sites doesn't make a network. It's like having eight passenger stations on the network. What good would that be? Um, there's got to be a much bigger 
network of places where these trains can run to of different shapes and sizes. It isn't all about intermodal anymore. There are other things coming in, conventional wagons showing a resurgence, express coming back in after decades out in the wilderness. Um, so it is, it's a case of where SRFIs go today, RFIs need to go tomorrow and an increasing similar pace. Thanks, Nick. Um, and I didn't think that was a most mouth response at all. I thought that was, uh, again, again, considered that I'd, uh, I'd be giving myself a bit more of a pat on the back there. Um, I'm just going to break with uh, my anticipated position. I just want to welcome to the stage David Diggle from Turley's. Hi, Dave. David, can you hear me? Hi, guys. Sorry about that. You okay? Yeah, very well, sir. So did you have a question for the panel? Want to raise anything further? Yeah, it's um, been interesting to um, listen to the debates. And uh, I know quite a few people on the panel worked in in this sector. And I've certainly felt the challenges of bringing forward and promoting SRFIs in the past. But um, and so completely agree with lots of the of the discussion and settlement today. It was just a quick question about Obviously, we've been talking about SRFIs and on their of scale and of strategic nature, but isn't there also a particular case that we need to deliver more smaller scale logistics, multimodal? I would probably call it logistics at a you know even at a regional or sub regional level um, to assist moving towards that you know that constant modal shift of shifting HGVs from road to rail, for example. There was a report from the Transport of the North a couple of years ago who was trying to advocate this, you know, this chain of multimodal you know, distribution centres across across the north, and but it never really went anywhere. Uh, didn't really get any political support, and you know, I'm sure Simon and, and Nick will agree. You know, no authorities in plan making ever seem to recognise the potential multimodality of sites in certain areas. And, and, we, and we, you know, whilst road to road logistics will have a role to play, surely there's a, a significant shift at that level needs to be, be delivered to as well. Yeah, that's a fair, a fair point. I mean, the, and clearly if the end game, as, as Gareth has said as part of his, his uh, closing speech is around marrying carbon emission reduction with, with with frankly productivity and improving the economy then that that should be considered who would like to kick me off on that one panel yeah i can come in briefly and then yeah i i, I think the key thing is um and this is a challenge it, uh, the way i see the world is perhaps not linear i don't see like a, a kind of a series of string a kind of a series of points in a single string between them the world is more like a really messy drunk one of those spiders they gave lsd in this 50s um, it's this complicated tangled web and you pull on one thing and it wiggles all the others and 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 it, i'm glad you brought up transport for the north because transport for the north had a fairly substantial transport plan both in terms of passenger and freight moves and essentially have been defunded because government didn't like it and wanted to centralize more power. We cannot, when it comes to public transport, and, and when I say public transport, I don't just mean passenger, I mean the public, you know, the, the provision of a service that provides for the movement of people and goods. Um, we cannot succeed, we cannot achieve that without further devolution of powers to the regions because Westminster is just is not interested enough in what is happening in the regions generally. 
and that includes London as a region. You know, it includes the M25 as a region. A lot of people say, "Oh, Westminster, you know, London only cares about London." No, Westminster hate London as well. Um, yeah, so there is, you know, this this is a challenge that is that, that has to be brought. And, and so, more broadly, we need to push for more devolution of power. We need to push for Transport for the North organisations like Transport for the North to have more power so that they can pursue this stuff. Because as I've been learning, as I've grown older. The best place to put power is not generally at a national level. It's at a pan-national level and it's at a sub-national level um, because things that get solved generally are a, a more local or a regional level or they're problems that can't be solved at that level and certainly can't be solved at a national level. They require a pan-national uh, approach. So for me, devolution is critical for this. Yeah, and I think I just want to jump in. I think I would completely agree with that. I mean, where I would see that, David, with with from my perspective is i always thought that regional bodies like mayor or combined authorities hit the sweet spot of being too small for government but too large for councils so what i would describe as anywhere between i know a capital ask of maybe five to 25 to 30 million pounds uh, to bring the type of scheme that you're talking about forward you know across uh, the north of england and the midlands but yeah i i completely agree with with, with your summary which is Yes, it's great to have SRFIs, but clearly there's a whole host of um, smaller schemes that will also be required to try and meet the challenge. I mean, Nick, Simon, from, from your perspective, and again, from, from working with a number of developers uh, across the UK, have you worked on similar schemes that, that Dave alludes to, which could form part of that, uh, that attack? Yeah, and I think the problem is, and I'm, I'm not deliberately trying to stoke Gareth so late in the day, and, and, and light blue touch papers and stuff. But I, I think it's somewhere between a fundamental review of the cost of connecting to the network. It used to be three to five million. Now it's probably nearer five to 15 million, if the latest figures are anything to be to be believed, even though as we as we found with schemes like IPOR, you know, the outturn cost can be significantly below what the, the initial uh, line in the sand cost is because of the governance and the process that delivers those costs. But that governance is choking off smaller schemes because the numbers that come in very early on in pace, and it is understandable that they're very early on, so they have to come with optimism bias, but they come with so much optimism bias that the scheme then promptly doesn't proceed. And part of the reason SRFIs have flourished as much as they have at scale is because, frankly, you need four, five, six, eight, 14 million square feet of floor space to pay for the cost of connecting to the network. Now, it's partly we are where we are in terms of how rail schemes are delivered. But I think if government were serious about decarbonisation and serious about the future of freight and serious about a growth target for rail freight, they would look at a different way of, uh, of as to how connections are procured and delivered. So the promoter of a scheme is not expected to bear the entire cost from day one in one hit. You know, we've often talked about a, a super connection agreement where the cost of the contract is amortized over many years so that you're not only paying network rail a, an element of that charge for maintaining the connection, you're also giving them an element of that charge for the initial cost of putting it in. Um, you know, I, I, otherwise we are not gonna see many more RFIs or maybe even passenger stations if if the answer is, well, you've got to pay the full cost of the facility from day one, and it's going to come with everything that you can't see, but we're going to justify because we're the only people who can deliver it for you. And, and that's not a good place to be. So again, it's back down to how serious is, 
is government in general about seeing rail freight blossom? And what is it going to do to attack some of the obstacles? And the the MPS and the DCO attacks the planning obstacle quite successfully, I would argue. But there is an infrastructure procurement and delivery obstacle that needs to be challenged as well um, to a similar scale. And I don't think we're there yet. If I could just add on the process side, and I, I totally agree with what Nick says about the uh, NSIP process, etc. When you're dealing with smaller schemes that um, fall under the NSIP threshold, to sound a bit like um, a cracked Depeche Mode record, um, you're then back into local politics, you're back into the world of the Town and Country Planning Act, you're saying, well, um, what does the development plan say? Oh, there isn't, there isn't a policy which uh, allocates the, the, the site for what we're proposing, uh, and you're facing a really uphill um, struggle. And uh, of course, um, you know, we've seen that succeed. Um, you know, for example, Radlett uh, uh, predated the NSIT regime, uh, but we've also seen it fail in terms of for example, not that I was involved, the um, Halbury Park, um, you know, now Slade Green scheme uh, dismissed uh, on appeal. So, you know, it's really, really difficult. In a, in a way, it's um, uh, the odds are probably better with larger schemes where you can make a better need case and go through the, the national route. Is there anything else from your side, David, before we uh, move on? Yeah, it, oh, yeah. Putting observations, it, it just kind of strikes me that you know, SRFIs will not will not just be the panacea. We need to, you know, have a look at multimodality through all of of scales, really. And you know, Nick and I have talked in the past about express freight and so on, on using passenger stations and zipping, you know, lighter goods across the country and so on, and really utilising to the rail network to its fullest potential how we move our goods and products around the country because you know as simon's alluded to the you know i think my my some of my reading of the, of the latest freight strategy and plan was i thought oh at long last the government has finally got it and has realized the importance of logistics to uk plc now whether that's a a political thing and saying oh well, actually there's quite a lot of hay we can make out of here and and a lot of the potential seems to be in areas where we want to level up so we can get on the bandwagon but i think it was finally useful to see that there was some recognition and this talk about pushing you know the sector further and i think there's just so much potential out there and i, I always strikes me when you go into local plan examinations or even need to start and speaking to planning officers at at plan making level where you know the potential of connecting sites to road to rail to, to water even just don't seem to be on the agenda really which i think there's a it's a huge opportunity missed yeah i think i agree with that i mean i worked on at least two schemes at harworth where they were water connected and uh, yeah the the amount of interest from the regulated sector i'll put it that way was pretty low so I think there's there's, there's uh, quite a lot to go at, in, in all honesty. Uh, but as you say, it's a balance and uh, absolutely no one on this panel would describe an SRFI as a panacea or a silver bullet for industry. But it seems odd that, that you know, there are a number of sites currently stuck within the planning system that with, with frankly a bit more push and a bit more political will could move somewhere. But I think, uh, you know, we've now reached uh, the end of the podcast, 75 minutes in. 
I'm sure that everyone will agree, what a fantastic panel in what is a, uh, a very difficult and thorny subject made it um, extremely entertaining uh, and informative. So thank you very much to all three of the panellists, Gareth Dennis, Nick Gallup, Simon Ricketts. Hope you enjoy the silence uh, following the end of this podcast. And uh, after the August break, our next uh, podcast will be on another thorny issue and it's going to be on energy strategies for new housing given where the national grid is today so i hope you can join me for that i'll be promoting it on twitter and linkedin in time but for now thank you very much for listening and have a lovely evening see you Ian. very good cheers all cheers. thanks ian thanks all have a good evening cheers